Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Geek Warning from the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang. We've got the full Escape Collective tech crew on hand today, uh, including Dave Rome in Australia. Hi, Dave. Hello. Uh, and we also have Ronan McLaughlin in Ireland. Hi, Ronan. Hello. How's it going? How is, how is everyone doing today? Uh, Dave, you're looking a little rough. Oh, I'm feeling much better, though. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, a week, I mean, a week off. A week off. Uh, not feeling so good, and uh, I'm on the mend. Good to hear it. Ronan, your mm. hair is looking pretty spectacularly poofy today. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, not sure why that is. I, I, I treated it to a, to a blow dry after the shower, so. Oh, there you go. To do with it. That'll, mm. that'll do it. I haven't. <laughs> I haven't used a blow dryer in 20 years, I think. <laughs> why, why not? Uh, you know, it's just, it, it, it's, it's not worth it. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> my, my head pretty much comes out of the shower dry already as it is. So mm-hmm. Fre- mm. freshly shaven as of today, I think, actually. Anyway, uh, we've got a whole big pile of tech news to get through today, including the new Orbea Orca GT Grade and Polygon Bend. Uh, we've got some pretty stunning new wheels from Synchros, of all people, to talk about. We've got a, a juicy little bit of news about a legacy brand that might just be staging a comeback. Uh, we're going to talk about RockShox's new SID cross-country suspension and mountain bike brands getting into gravel in general. Uh, we'll then see what everyone's got on their minds this week and then close out with a PSA as usual. Uh, but first, a little PSA of our own. Uh, long-time listeners of GeekWorn will probably have noticed that we don't run any ads on this show, and that's because everything we do at Escape Collective is directly funded by you, our subscribers and members. Uh, being a full Escape Collective member gets you full access to everything on the site, comments included, as well as a ticket to our members-only Discord channel and live podcast recording sessions, which actually we need to schedule one of those soon. Um, if you'd rather lurk instead of participate, you can get yourself a subscription instead of a membership. We've got monthly and annual options starting at just 7 bucks US a month. So hopefully you can make some room in your budget for us. Uh, if you're already a member, thanks a ton for the support. If you like what you're getting in return, please tell your buddies about Escape Collective so that they can consider joining too. And if by some small chance you're not happy with what you're getting, please tell us why. Uh, we're all pretty easy to get a hold of on social media or otherwise. Head over to escapecollective.com slash join to sign up. Uh, and finally, a quick shout out to some of our lifetime members who played a big role in getting Escape Collective off the ground just a few short months ago. Big thanks go out to Tony and Judy Van Bergen in Australia, Eric Poley, Jake Byrne, and Chris Schultz. We've also got a few industry folks to thank for their lifetime contributions, including Darren Baum of Bomb Cycles, Dirk Friel from Training Peaks, and Marco Toselli from the Sella Royal Group. Thanks to all of you for the assist. All right, and with that, thank on you. with the show. Uh, so yeah, first up in this long list, Orbea's got a new Orca. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it's the seventh generation Orca now that the, uh, the Basque brand is very specifically pigeonholing this generation as a lightweight climbing bike. It is pretty light at 750 grams claimed for a 53 centimeter top end frame, 360 grams for the matching fork. Uh, there's also a second tier frame, the Orca OMR, uh, the top end one's the OMX, uh, the OMR comes in at 1030 grams for the frame and 410 for the fork. And between both, there are over a dozen complete models available. Uh, I mean, if you're a pretty diehard weight winner, you can say that those numbers are light, but not crazy light, especially for something billed as a climbing bike. Uh, but Orbea says that the other priorities in the design of this thing were ride quality and stiffness, which are both good things to have, 
There are a bunch of custom options through the Orbea's Mayo program, which uh, actually there's a ton of custom paint options available at no extra charge, which is pretty cool. Which is pretty cool. Uh, and I'd argue that the bike actually looks pretty sweet, especially if you're into more traditional lines. Uh, I'm kind of curious. What do we think of this thing? <laughs> there's a lot of finger pointing going on here. Ronan, Ronan you, you are the designated climber of the bunch. I'm really especially interested to hear your perspective here. F- former, former climber. Um, very, very much former, former climber at- these days. Former uh, as even, what, even like two then. weeks ago? He is a former no, climber because when I asked for his notes on the classified hub system, he uh, sent me uh, a few paragraphs explaining how he had optimized for the at the Raz uh, uh, race that he had optimized for the flats and the, the rolling terrain and that the, the hills were not a critical moment and that he was happy to give up the weight and any efficiency losses on the hills because they weren't going to be an important part of the race to him. So... Um, yeah, I'm I'm shocked, but anyway, this is a new Ronan we're dealing with, James. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Like, we, like we won't we won't we won't describe you as a climbing specialist. <laughs> Why don't we just say that you are a optimization chameleon? How about that? that I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit happier with that. Yeah, yeah, definitely, okay. definitely a bit happier with that. Um, <laughs> All right. Anyway, the, what do you think of this thing? Getting back to it, I I mean, at the moment, I don't think a whole lot simply because i don't know a whole lot about it we were expecting the test bike to arrive in and that hasn't done so yet and i sort of handed off uh judy's on the the news story last week on this bike to yourself um i was sort of inundated with time trial optimization stuff following that tour de france uh thing that happened uh, over the last few weeks um but i think i mean i mean as you mentioned there you know it's not stunningly light but I think what our bear are sort of saying here is that it's lightweight, but also rides uh, presumably exceptionally well from from what I took from re- from reading your piece. Um, and I think the, you know, I think the big takeaway, at least from the sort of chatter that I've seen online, was about the shift in terms of. Uh, you know, modern bikes and disc brakes and electronic group sets and power meters and all the rest and making them now lightweight. And it seems like we went through the disc brake revolution and then the aero revolution and probably both at the same time. And now all of a sudden we're into this sort of lightweight focus with, was it Factor recently had the O2 come out? Canyon obviously had the Ultimate recently. Specialized sort of kicked it all off with the Athos. Um, and are we... Uh, are are we back to square one as cyclists where we're now focused on weight again personally i think it's a very different you know bikes are very different now when we're trying to make them lightweight than they were 10 years ago uh when we're trying to reduce the weight and as such the one thing i find myself repeatedly having to write and say and i want this to be sort of the last time that i have to repeat myself is that it won't uh, be no, it won't be, but anything under 6.8, anything under 6.5, anything that begins with 6 is, in this day and age, what what I'm going to refer to as, as a lightweight bike. And if I remember correctly, Orbea have done that. So, um, you know, what what is there, 107 grams between this and an Athos? Um, 150 yeah. or so, yep. I think. About, yeah, I think mean, this one is 750. The lightest weight, Ath- the lightest weight Athos is like 600 right around there. Um, so in terms of percentages, this, this Orca is quite a bit heavier than the Athos. Um, but in terms of absolutes, and we do know 
I mean, 150 grams in terms of climbing times, it really doesn't make that much of a difference. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that Athos Ronin because um, that has proven to be a pretty spectacularly popular road bike for Specialized. And I think they kind of nailed it in, this, in the sense that, you know, not everyone is out to save every particular second. So not everything has to be like hyper aero optimized and everything. There is a lot to be said for a bike that just feels really light and good underneath you. Um, so I guess one thing I didn't mention about this Orca is it is, it's not aero at all. It's mostly like rounded two profiles for the most part. Like it doesn't claim to be aero anything aside from having the, uh, having the cables be hidden underneath the, underneath the barn stem. So they're not fully internally routed, which is kind of nice. Um, which I mean but, uh, is as much an aesthetics thing as it is an aero thing these days. I, I think it's more an aesthetics yeah, thing in this case. More. Yeah. Um, so it does aesthetically. It does. I think it looks fantastic, especially if you're into kind of more traditional bikes. It just looks really good. Yeah, I was going to say that's kind of Obey's the Orca's strong suit, right? It has been traditionally is aesthetics. That's generally speaking, anyone that I've ever known to have one, they've bought it because they they connect with the brand and they connect with how it looks. They just like it as a as a bike, you know, uh, and I think that's fundamentally what's going to sell these things. Is you know, on paper, it's it's as we said, it's not the lightest, certainly not the most aero. It's it's probably a pretty nice riding bike. I haven't ridden it, but fundamentally, the people buying this are buying it because they like the look of it. Well, and what I also found kind of neat was um, on uh, our Escape Collective Discord channel, there were a bunch of members who were already playing with that Mayo custom paint program and kind of posting up little photos of what they had come up with. Um, and, you know, one thing that I forgot to mention in, in the article that's up on the site is um, if you go with the Orbea house brand wheels, um, you also have the option of getting decals to match your frame. Um, so, you know, you end up with like a really nice cohesive package. So, again, might not be the lightest. Uh, I should say that the pricing, if I remember correctly, actually does look pretty good. If I remember, it's it's you know, a decent chunk less expensive than an Athos. Um and then you add in what presumably is supposed to be really good rod quality. Uh, the Orcas have always handled really nicely. Um, again, like they look good, the custom paint option. Then, I don't know, it seems like there's a fair bit going here. Uh, I've always liked, I've always just liked Orbea as a brand too. Like I think they do good stuff. Yep. Um, the, those house brand wheels, it's worth noting, they're, they're new as well. And they're uh, being made in Spain. It's and like semi-hooked. Semi-hooked. Yeah. So that's, that's probably one to look into in the future, but it's uh yeah, it's kind of a, a fresh brand that they've built a new faci- manufacturing facility for. So it's quite cool. Do do we want to do want to briefly touch on what semi hooked means? Yeah, mini hooks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that much I got. And, and yeah, in in regards to the the semi hooked thing or mini hooks, however you want to call it. Um, Basically, Orbea is building these wheels. They, they're not hookless, but they don't have as prominent a bead hook as you might normally see in a hooked rim. Um, I think if I remember correctly, I think it might have been Campagnolo who kind of started doing the kind of mini hook thing. Um, the, the claim is basically that it, you, know, you get some of the benefits of hookless in terms of the tire to rim transition. Um, but because you have even just that little bit of a hook, supposedly the tire security is better and the tire compatibility is better. Um, so essentially if you have a tire that is approved for use on a hooked rim, you supposedly can use it on that rim. Um, so that does kind of open up possibilities and it's kind of a neat little thing that, uh, I don't know, it seems like kind of a decent compromise, although I'm not really sure where that whole thing sits within the whole ETRTO universe. So, 
Mm. Um, like, is that technically considered a hooked rim? I don't know. But that whole thing is just a giant quagmire that we should probably dedicate an entire episode to someday. Mm. What would be the acronym of a mini hook? Got, hmm. you know, TSS for tubeless straight tubeless side. straight side. Yeah. Uh, I'm just overcomplicating this now. <laughs> maybe just the shrug emoji. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, anyway, hopefully that test bike will show up on your doorstep at some point, Ronan, because I really would like to hear how this thing rides. So, uh, Orbea, if you're listening to the show, please get that going. We would love to see how this thing does. Um, another new bike that just got announced is the third generation of the GT Grade. Mm. Uh, the Grade has been kind of a sleeper kind of all-road slash gravel bike for a long time. Uh, this one retains GT's signature triple triangle profile, uh, where the seat stays meet the top two well forward of the seat tube. Uh, the seat tube, uh, the seat stays actually don't touch the seat tube at all, um, which GT says allows the seat tube to kind of flex more on bumps. And the seat stays themselves, uh, they're actually not hollow like you normally get. Uh, they're solid. Um, and so it's sort of like a carbon fiber wrapped fiberglass. Um, and GT says that is also meant to provide more flex and with all those, with like between where the seat stays attached and what they're made of and how small they are. So GT is claiming, uh, claiming that you get up to 30 millimeters of travel at the saddle. Uh, they're calling it, quote, gravel travel, unquote. Very clever. Very, very clever. Uh, some of those models also get dedicated gravel suspension forks and dropper seat posts if you really want to get rowdy. Uh, you got a whole bunch of mounts for attaching stuff. There's an easy to maintain partially internal cable routing, threaded bottom brackets, uh, clearance for 40 mil plus tires. The frame geometry is pretty progressive. The reach dimensions are quite long. A uh, whole bunch of models in both carbon and aluminum. Top end model is uh, four grand US for a SRAM Apex One mechanical drivetrain. That's the eleven speed stuff, not the oh. new twelve speed stuff. Yeah. Hmm. Um, that bike also comes with a Rockshox uh, Rockshox Rudy Explore fork. And then the least expensive grade elite is aluminum, thirteen hundred bucks US. Uh, mix of Shimano Claris and FSA stuff, including Tektra mechanical disc brakes. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the the complete builds are admittedly kind of <laughs> underwhelming for me here, but yeah. I am intrigued by this whole gravel travel frame because having ridden some of the previous iterations of the GT grade, those bikes do actually ride pretty okay, uh, quite nicely actually. Um, so I'm curious what that bike feels like, but getting the thing I'm real throwback, uh, to the Velagi road bike, the first disc oh, yeah. brake road bike vibes with that design. Very um, much so. Which is, you know, it's not a bad, it's definitely not a bad bike to be inspired by. Um, you know, for those that aren't familiar, Velagi was, I think it was the first disc brake road bike, wasn't it? It was like an, it was... It, a, a, a few, a few ex specialized employees sort of started their own. Yep, sort of endurance road bike brand, and they had this yep. this bike that had that sort of same like uh, seat stay design that went straight to the top tube. Uh, Indeed, and it was you know released at a time where none of the main group set manufacturers offered disc brake group sets. So every every bike I ever saw, and the one I tested had sort of like TRP calipers mounted to a mechanical group set, and oh yeah, still a nice quick, riding quick frame. release, open dropout stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, it was it was. Certainly ahead of its time, uh, for better or worse. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this this does use some aspects of how that frame was made. Um, I might guess is that the back end of this bike is actually probably going to ride pretty smoothly. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, the whole the, but the complete builds are just kind of like yeah, yeah. It's pretty underwhelming to see like Apex Eleven speed still in use, and uh, and yeah, that cheaper build's probably not going to be the the best performing thing given our experience with those group with those parts in the past. Yeah, I'm not really. I just not really sure what to think because again, like some of the things on that frame. Like the geometry looks really, really progressive. The medium frame has like a 405 mil reach, which is super long. Mm-hmm. Um, it would put the front wheel way out there, very short stem, uh, very kind of like mountain bike-esque handling, which I think could be really fun in rough terrain. Um, like, I, I, I don't, I'm not even sure if GT is offering that grade as a frame only, but I would almost be curious what that bike would feel like with a better build kit. Yeah, indeed. But uh, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm intrigued. I'd like to ride one at some point. Yeah, so we'll we'll see if an opportunity arises. I, I, I dare say if we put in a request, one would probably show up for a loaner. Uh, what I'm super intrigued about, however, uh, Dave, you were just telling me about this bike the other day, is that the, the new Bend uh, from Polygon. Yeah. Uh, sounds like a pretty amazing deal. So what are we looking at here? Yeah, Polygon's kind of uh, been smashing it in the value front on a lot of bikes. And uh, they, at least in the Australia for the last, 10 years should i say and uh they recently uh that company that that is so price competitive uh, bikes online they've expanded into the u.s in recent years so you can also get their sort of hard-hitting pricing there too and yeah this new band it's it's very similar in um <clears throat> i guess in design and application to the but the the gt grade you just discussed or something like a giant revolt x uh, so they've got a model that has front suspension and sort of like a a SRAM Eagle drivetrain, one by drivetrain, so wide range. It's built on an alloy frame, which uh, Polygon, they're an Indonesian manufacturer, aluminium specialist. So it's in-house. They make it themselves. It's basically factory direct. Uh, but this bike, so it's you get Novatec carbon wheel set. You get a Fox AX32 fork. You get a Reverb Axis Explore seat post. You get a SRAM GX Eagle Axis group set. Any guesses on the US price, James? US price? Oh, I keeping in mind you said four grand for that GT grade with Ap- Apex 11 speed. Mechanical. Mechanical. Oh, is there any possible way that that Polyon is less expensive than that GT? Uh, really? How, like, yeah. okay, what's, what's the actual US official price? 3,700. Wow. I mean, granted, that's with an aluminum frame instead of a carbon one, but still, I mean, that. For 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 gravel, I, I would I would argue for a lot of people that aluminum makes more sense anyway. But that is a killer killer yep. price point, like unreal. Yep. So fifty three hundred Aussie, thirty seven hundred US, and it's kind of reminds me of like I'm trying to think of is it like Motor Beacon maybe like you used to get these brands that were basically like parts kit bikes where yeah. you like the parts were worth more than the the bike if that makes sense so you'd like you'd buy totally. the bike you'd strip it down chuck the frame and you use those parts <laughs> on something else this is almost achieving that um the frame doesn't look terrible though like there's i'm sure this frame is is perfectly sufficient to do its job and it has all the features that you'd want there's more mounts than i've ever seen anywhere oh yeah oh yes yeah you can there's you a can lot have of every bag you want with this bike you can spend multiples of them. You can spend more on bags than the whole bike costs, and like still have spam mounts with this bike. Um, so yeah. So anyway, that it's just basically it's just the price that's most impressive with this one. Uh, there's also a more like rigid version, which has like a rival Axis Explore group set on it, a rigid fork, um, and that's just three grand US. 
So yeah, I mean that's it's pretty cool. There's a ton of high clearance in this frame. So anyway, I might get one in to test. I've actually got a different polygon in to test at the moment, so that's why I haven't got one of these. But uh, yeah, once I once I get past that uh, more road going polygon that I've got, then maybe we'll look at this. Well, I'd love for you to get one of those in because I'm really I would love to see how that thing performs. Uh, because one thing I've always said about bikes in general is regardless of what the manufacturing cost is for aluminum versus carbon or, or anything, uh, you know, good geometry really costs nothing other than uh, experience, I would say. And that polygon looks like it could be pretty good. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely still don't see very many of those here in the U.S. at all, but maybe that'll change moving forward. I mean, it's it's hard to pass up a good deal like that, especially if the bike is pretty good quality. Um, and honestly, I feel like the fact that they're making it themselves is a good thing. Um it obviously cuts down on the kind of like a, a lot of um, like a lot of middleman sort of stuff. Um, but it's also nice that because they're making it themselves, they're not just sort of like contracting out to some cheap manufacturer somewhere. So like it might actually be a better bike. So we will see. Um, moving to the opposite end of the pricing spectrum, uh, Synchros is a house brand of Scott. Um, they recently introduced some super fancy new road wheels. Uh, particular interest are the top end capital SL Aero. Uh, those use a completely one piece molded carbon fiber construction. Uh, they're crazy light at right around 1300 grams, considering that they're also 60 mils deep and uh, supposedly have some of the best drag numbers around. Uh, they're also super wide, super stiff, uh, and yet they actually ride really nicely. Uh, they're definitely not inexpensive at all at uh, 4100 US. Uh, however, when you look at what else these wheels are trying to compete against at this end of the market, like it's the lightweights and partingtons and that sort of thing, yeah. it's not even just not bad. Like they almost kind of seem like a bargain. Um, yeah. <laughs> Let's say they, they seem better. Let's not say they seem like a bargain. Let's say they seem better. Is that fair I, to say? Rel- it's, it's all relative. It's yeah, all I get, relative I get James's point because like a set of partingtons is, is uh, it's 9,000 Australian, uh, which I think is like six and a bit US maybe. Yeah, I think the Partington's are like sixty five hundred or something like that. Yeah, so I mean that's 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 not a small price difference. No, and then the mm. lightweights are even more. Uh, and then I would argue, <coughs> granted, I have not ridden the Partington's and I haven't ridden any lightweights in a fair bit. Um, but if you only look at the numbers in terms of like rim depth and rim width and aerodynamic profiles and stuff like that, I, I mean these Synchros wheels blows all of that stuff out of the water. That that was. Yeah. A th- that was what caught my attention whenever we were sort of messaging back and forth about the wheels there, James. And I think at one point I had confused the internal rim widths that you had given me. Uh, I had, a, I hadn't confused it. I just assumed that you were referring to external rim widths and I was like, Oh yeah, here we go. Super light, but they're very narrow and they're not going to, you know, integrate all that well in terms of aerodynamics with you know the trend towards wider tires. Then you put me straight that no, those are actually internal rim widths, and the external rim widths are uh, as impressive as the well, not as impressive, but when you consider also the the depth of the rim and the uh, the the width, and then the weight on top of that, uh, yeah, very quickly I started to very very much regret uh, having you review these wheels and not myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, deeply, if, if deeply any, regretted that every day since then. <laughs> if, if it's any consolation, I, I'm, I'm already about to put these things back in a box and send them off. Oh, uh, I mean, no. maybe I should just relabel these and just ship them off to Ireland. <laughs> mm, 
Ronan's now got a photo of them on his bedside table. He just <laughs> looks at them lovingly every day. It sounds like if I ever want to be a climber again, these are the ways that I need. Uh, I mean, it's pretty amazing. I mean, cause it's funny, like, you know, we were talking earlier about that, about that specialized ethos. And when I was riding or when I was testing these wheels, the thought that kept going through my head was that uh, the bike that I was on is an ND, it's an NV custom all road. It's not especially light. It's um, definitely nowhere near the weight of an ethos. But um, the thing that kept going through my head when I was riding this thing and going up climbs was that, you know, this thing reminds me suddenly a whole lot of how I felt when I was testing the S-Works Athos, like the super light version. And then it dawned on me that it, it, that's probably the case because the Synchros wheels, despite being so much deeper, they are basically the same weight as the uh, Roval Alpinist wheels. Um, the, the, they're shallow, super light climbing wheels. Um, so the whole bike that I was on was obviously heavier than that, than that complete S-Works Athos, but the wheel weight was pretty much bang on uh, with those shallow wheels and just like going up hell, like th- these wheels just felt absolutely amazing. And then going down or on the flats, like it just carries so much more speed than a shallow wheel. I mean, for me, the the big talking point with these these wheels and say Zip that also and Envy that also do the same thing is the the twenty five millimeter internal width hookless rim. Do we? I'm. I mean, I've ridden like I, I have previously tested like say Zip the three five three NSWs, and my kind of takeaway was that. For the the person that is that wheel set's best suited to, I'm kind of of the feel, feeling that the 25 millimeter internal width and hookless is on the little is slightly too wide, like because that person's what's going to want to run like a 28 or 30 mil tire, and that squares off the tire a little bit. What what are your thoughts? Do you do you agree with that, or you think this is actually a, an optimal width? Um, it's an interesting question because I guess speaking of the internal width and external width, so on the at the top end, the, the for the capital SL, there is a capital SL arrow that I was just talking about, and then there's also a capital SL, which is slightly shallower, like 40 mils deep. Um, the capital SL, those wheels are 25 mil internal front and rear. The SL arrow is 25 mil internal rear, 23 mil front. So it's actually a little bit narrower front, but the external width is like 32 rear and 31 front, something like that. Um, and they they came with the new Schwabi Pro One Aero tires, um, and we still don't have a whole lot of info on these tires from Schwabi. But they, from what I can tell, the, the front tire in particular, uh, they are front and rear specific, which is interesting. The front tire has a slightly elongated cross section, um, so they're they're definitely not squared off for sure. But they're also not like especially pointy. Um, I. As far as the whole tire and and rim width thing goes, particularly on hookless, I mean, I continue to be a little uncomfortable with the, uh, I think it's a 10% safety margin officially between what you are supposed to be able to inflate these with versus what the tire is likely going to blow off at. Um, I mean, in generally speaking, in engineering terms, a, 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 a 1.1 safety factor is not very much no um especially so, when most people's floor pumps are probably only accurate to within 20 percent. yeah so i mean that that just the fact that you have that huge a possibility for error is pretty disconcerting um again that's that's, that's maybe a topic for another whole, yeah. uh, whole yes. episode yes um 
But I did talk to Synchros about the, the kind of the limitations of pressure and like heavier riders and what they should do, especially if they kind of fall outside of the recommended uh, pressure, uh, tire pressure for their, for their weight. And they were saying essentially that if you go, if you need more pressure than the, was it five and a half bar or 72 PSI, something like that. Um, they're saying basically that, you know, you, you need to go up a tire size. So instead of a, a, a 28 mil marked tire, you need to go up to a, tw- a 30. Um, and, you know, at that point you would lose some of the aero benefit, but not that much. I mean, clearly, you know, the weight limit on these, on these wheels is pretty remarkably high. If I remember cor- correctly, the rider plus bike weight limit is 120 kilos, which is a lot. It's like 245 pounds or something. Um, and, uh, oh no, it's like 265. Sorry. Um, that's, that's a lot. Um, granted it's still a little bit a little bit of a bummer that you are somewhat limited in terms of how big a rider you can be to extract the full benefit of these wheels but uh, you know that again that the, the whole hookless thing is i know you can't see me people who are listening to this but i am shaking my head yeah and that's that's just the sticking point for me with these wheels is it's just and it's the same sticking point with zip and, and mv and all those but yeah it's just mini hooks mini hooks for everyone yeah I, I don't know no it's just and it's not just the hookless it's just the the rim width as well for me it's just uh anyway i i don't i don't I mind the, the rim width thing i think it's the rim width with with the hookless is it's the combination of those two is not dave and that yeah uh, i the think qu- so question yeah. i had it was just on the new swabby aero tires james what what were they that you said they were front and rear specific so uh were they like mark 28s or, or what were they actually they were they were marked as 28s but uh what makes them front and rear specific is uh partially the cross-section shape like i mentioned uh, but then also the tread cap on the front is is thinner um it's like a 0.8 mil or something tread like milk it, it's the rubber's quite thin up front um uh, so they they try to make these things as speedy as possible obviously what did you measure the size and what they measured inflated on the synchros wheels? I did. I did. Um, if I remember, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but if I remember correctly, I think the rear came out to be about 31 and the front was somewhere around 30. Um, so they puffed up quite a bit, but they still fell within within the, uh, the I guess, the outer bounds of the maximum rim width, uh, which I found pretty impressive considering how big the tires were. I mean, like, yeah, not getting into it all again, but the whole ETRTO thing that we discussed so many times at the start of this year or whatever. Um, you know, if it's I now had saying, hair, I'd be pulling it out right now. Yeah, but it's now saying nothing less than a twenty-nine mil wide tire, and then the point I'm trying to get to is, you know, running around the Tour de France with a set of very new calibers. I don't think we've yet hit the upper limit of how wide we're going to go on road tires. Um, Pogaccia, for example, was riding, okay, they were marked 28, but his his tires, again, were measuring 31 millimeter. Mm. Um, but how well on, did that work out for him? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I mean, yeah, maybe that's where he went wrong, but I don't think so because he, he didn't. I, I'm just I'm just uh, racking my brain here trying to remember, did he crash at any point during the tour? I don't think he, he did, but I don't think the tires were to blame. He crashed going uphill one day. Uh, anyway, the point is getting to, I don't think we've hit the upper limit yet of road tire widths. I don't think 28 is where we're going to stop. I think 30 is maybe yeah, the 30, more likely. 30 to 31 measured seems to be like the the ideal settling point and a, and a really good width for like the common consumer as well. Um, mm. 
But yeah, from my point is that that's kind of like that's like your bare minimum when you've got a twenty five mil internal width rim. You know, you put a twenty eight on that, you're getting a thirty to thirty one mil tire out of it. Um, yeah, the, so, where I'm wondering, yeah. are we going as well as like with the next generation of tires? You know, uh, perhaps we stick with twenty eights, but are we magically going to move to twenty nines that are slightly different somehow uh, and going to better fit with these? You know, are, basically, the question I'm asking is, are the rims ahead of the tires and are the tires on the way and then you know with at least as far as my understanding goes based on an article that i've written should be published by the time you're listening to this podcast um one of the things i was talking to dove tate who's the founder of parkour wheels one a, a british brand he was telling me that basically if you have to run the tire that is going to be wider than ideal for the the rim that you've got so if you're going to fall outside the rule of 105 and your tire is going to be more than 105 percent of the or not only is your tire going to be too wide but it's, it's going to be sort of the inverse instead of the rim being wider than the tire the tire is much wider than the rim if you've got a deeper rim like this sl arrow is a 60 millimeter rim then you have a better chance of the rim still being able to sort of recapture reattach the airflow coming the sort of turbulent airflow coming off the tire and still give you that sort of aero benefit if you imagine if you had a 30 mil rim hidden them behind a tire that was far too wide you're not really going to get those aero benefits whereas at least if you've got a deeper rim you'd still have a chance of getting some sort of aero gain off of it so it i think in a roundabout way what i'm sort of saying is it might not all be lost in terms of um having too wide a tire on these wider rims yeah uh i think your point about uh rim is like are the rim technology and rim widths ahead of the tire technology i think that's spot on and even in mountain bike i think that still applies it's like 30 mil has become the kind of the new standard internal width across most mountain bikes uh and there's a lot of tires that are still catching up uh like maxis for example they do a what they call a wide tread where the the treads actually designed for that wider rim so it doesn't it doesn't the tie doesn't get squared off as much it stays more round across its uh across its casing and i think we might perhaps need to see that in the road side of things if if we've got brands that are, are pushing this 25 mil internal width and we've got people wanting to run 28 mil quoted tire sizes on these rims then perhaps we need a tire that is more bulbous to achieve a round shape without being massively wide it kind of sounds like the the schwab era maybe is playing to that james i think they are i mean the supposedly these tires and rims were designed kind of together with each other uh, they were launched on the same day they were they very much in some sort of collaborative project here um and i would say that these tires as i mentioned they, they definitely did not seem unusually squared off at all um the tread cap was like although it was thin it wasn't unusually narrow uh, so it didn't look like the tread cap was designed for a rim that was appreciably narrow than uh, narrower than these synchros wheels. Um, so it, it all seemed to go pretty well together. I mean, I do think that I do think that we don't have much of a choice but to now design tires around these wider rim widths. Um, and I think we have already started. We've already started to see some of that. I mean, if you want to look at Envy, for example, I mean they've been they've been marking their own brand of tires for a little while now, and and we already see that they've kind of changed their tire sizes or I guess uh, either changed or updated. I can't remember, but like, you know, instead of what used to be like 23, 25, 27, they're like, you know, they're, they're, or 
23, 25, 28, or excuse me, they're like, you know, they're 29s and they're 31s. They're just like one millimeter more. Um, but maybe that's to kind of get around ETRTO stuff that they knew was happening. I, I can't say, um, but uh, for sure, wheel and rim brands and tire brands, uh, uh, they, they desperately, desperately need to get on the same page here uh, for a variety of reasons. And my God, I can go off for an hour on just how much this whole thing frustrates, mm. frustrates me. Because I just think it's so incredibly, incredibly stupid. All right. Um, so, like, well, it's a. I think it's a topic we've we've covered in depth before. Probably due for an update on. So, um, perhaps we have a, an episode dedicated to it in the future. Uh, if, if if nothing else, I think uh, I I think I need to devote maybe my next column to this because I've mm-hmm. I've got some I've got some some thoughts and feelings on this for sure. Yep. Can Can you include your thoughts on where the Rim manufacturers might go next when the tire manufacturers finally catch up to the 25 internals. <laughs> 26 mil. <laughs> oh, dear God. Ah. Ah, okay. All right. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's wrap up the synchros wheel discussion. Uh, moving on to another wheel issue. Uh, I shouldn't even say issue. A little bit of juicy wheel news. So uh, that legacy brand that I mentioned earlier that is going to be making a comeback. So the company that I'm talking about is Mavic. Um, so I, I kind of discussed this or described this as sort of like a juicy rumor, but um, it's pretty it's a pretty well substantiated rumor. Uh, so I'm pretty comfortable putting it out there. But uh, Mavic is apparently coming back to the United States. Um, so we don't have any real info yet. Certainly no official info, but it's apparently actually happening. Uh, it's not just going to be some half-hearted thing. Um, it sounds like it's going to be wheels at first, uh, maybe rims too, uh, possibly followed by some of their soft goods, but we'll see. Um, I am super, super intrigued to see what happens here. Um, because it's been a few years now since Mavic has pulled out of the U S and it was definitely not a particularly smooth exit. They left a lot of people hanging. Uh, there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of miscommunication. There was just a lot of confusion about what was going on then. Um, and the fact that Mavic is coming back, I think is very exciting because for as much as Mavic had a reputation for being kind of overly conservative with their stuff, um, I do believe that their wheels were still very, very good, uh, particularly if you, if you were looking at like a lot of long-term aspects. Um, but uh, I'd say the wheel market now, it's just even in the last few years, has changed an awful lot since Mavic left. Um, and the thing that I'm worried about with Mavic is whether or not they can actually kind of, you know, whether they have a have a, like a, a snowball's chance in hell of it being able to pull this off, just based on the fact that they're probably not going to be crazy and expensive. And at this point, they've been gone for long enough that I feel like a lot of people just won't remember who they are. Yeah, just to clarify, so we're, I mean, we're talking about a direct subsidiary of of Mavic, correct? Euro- Europe, correct. Europe, but in Amer- North America, which is what they used yep. to have, and yep. what they've been without for the last few years through Mavic's transition from not knowing who its owner is to having a new owner and to restarting the brand. Yes. Uh, yes. So yeah. So I mean, that's. Yeah, I mean that's definitely a, a big investment on Mavic's part um, to to open up a subsidiary again. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know, James. Like, I, I agree. Like, wheels, carbon wheels, especially, have become very much a a commodity item in recent years. Uh, with you know, disc brakes have basically opened the door to that. And yeah, I I think 
Mavic has definitely lost a a huge amount of its market share that it once had. Um, as has every company, basically. I mean, it's it's a pretty saturated market now. So yeah, I don't know. I, I do wish them all the luck, though. I, I would say to answer your question, do they have any chance? I feel like we're going to have much more of a chance if they ditch, just ditch the soft goods and stick to wheels, what they're sort of known for. Um, Which I thought was what I thought that was the whole business mission. <laughs> like when they when they got bought, I Everybody thought that's thought what that they public announced. But, yeah, every, but the. We're ditching the soft goods, but we're still going to do shoes and we're still going to do helmets and we're going to keep these couple of jerseys and these three shorts and we're going to keep this and we're going to keep that. <laughs> <laughs> I said it on the presentation, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, right. I mean, the wheels, to me, the wheels have always been a sort of, I don't know if aspirational is the right word, but certainly, if, you know, you put Mavic wheels on a bike, uh, at least in this part of the world, it sort of meant something. Um, and at least the feeling I always had was that if you had like Mavic soft goods, it meant sort of the opposite. They, they, they didn't really, uh, you know, they were, they seemed like perfectly good products and that, but they didn't really feel like, um, Mavic products. And they also, I think contributed to Mavic sort of losing their way. Um, and I think if they just went back to making damn good wheel sets, that's probably what everybody wants to see. Like we, we're not really going to be all that disappointed if you can't buy a Mavic jersey anymore. But if you can't buy Mavic Cosmics that are up to date and you know a, a genuine option, then that does sort of make me a bit sad. So hopefully we can see those return. I mean, I think, I, I think as a general rule, anytime a company makes the decision to cash in some of their brand equity to expand into a category that is not one of their core competencies, that that is always going to be a move that is pretty fraught with risk. Um, and in fairness to Mavic, a lot of their non-wheel goods were pretty good, actually. Like their the last generation of clothing that I tried for them was actually quite good. Um, although their shoes didn't necessarily fit my feet very well, I, I do know a lot of people who were very, very happy with them. They had some interesting innovations with shoes. Um, helmets were always just kind of like, eh, for me. But um, yeah, I mean, a lot of that stuff was was brought on by the fact that they were purchased by uh, Amher Sports back in yeah. the day. And they were kind of like you know, the same company that owned uh, Arcteryx and stuff like that. So they, they were a soft goods company. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, that's where a lot of that came from. So I would love to see Mavic kind of return to focusing on its core stuff because I, I agree for as much as their wheels weren't necessarily cutting edge, they were super, super solidly done, uh, very well thought out, generally very highly engineered. Um, I kind of put them in the same category as Fulcrum uh, in a way that like, they're, they're not always as impressive on paper as they as they might be. Um, certainly not always the cheapest, but um, they often seemed like they were just generally very very in, well thought out we're, we're well never really through. riding down the road thinking is this tire working with this rim or is it all going to fall apart at any second yeah there's Correct. a lot of trust in that product um yeah uh, yeah barring the original asus wheels but um that's yeah i mean there, there is like a lot of yeah there, there's certainly uh you can assume that they've done their testing with those wheels and that you're going to mount a tire up and it's not going to be a bear to to use and it's going to inflate the way a tubeless tire should and everything's just going to work out um and that's sort of what you're paying for with a fulcrum wheel set and with the mavic wheel set and with the shimano wheel set is 
these companies are, are very conservative, but that also results in a, a product that that isn't the latest and greatest, but works. And it's funny, I, d- I don't really know how Mavic is going to conduct their marketing in the US moving forward as they come back into this market. Um, but I kind of see a lot of parallels between Mavic and like Toyota, for example. Um, like in the automotive world, Toyota is absolutely not seen as like a on the edge innovator. Like they are definitely not ones to push the envelope and like really push the extremes as far as, you know, technology and being at the forefront of stuff. Um, and even though their cars and trucks are almost never the absolute best at anything, uh, a lot of times they're pretty mediocre. In fact, like, you know, people love the Toyota Tacoma, for example, but you like virtually any other midsize truck is quite a lot better than that. Um, but they still sell a ton of stuff because it's a Toyota and they have this very well-earned reputation for high quality assembly and reliability and that sort of thing. And I feel like that's the sort of thing that Mavic could potentially bank on, but that's hard. That's a hard thing to convey, particularly if you're just coming back into a market and you don't have a whole lot of legacy to bank on. Yeah. And, and in recent recent legacy, the most recent legacy as well, like burned a lot of people with hub reliability issues and, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's no other issue other than that, but I mean, that's enough cause to be shy of a brand. So, yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think they'll succeed. I don't think they're going to disappear again, but uh, I, God, don't, I, I, don't, I don't believe we're going to see Mavic return to the prominence that it once had, uh, unfortunately. Wasn't it Mavic track wheels that British Cycling once said were like rounder than the other round wheels that the other nations had in the Olympics. And that was, <laughs> I can't remember if that was an April Fool's or if that was like a, a joke at the time of the Olympics, but uh, I'm pretty sure it was Mavic that I think it was Dave, Dave Brailsford had said, yeah, our wheels are really good because they're just so much rounder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Such a good I don't really know how much <laughs> credence i gave to that no there was like there uh, yeah it was there was there was nothing behind it but i'm pretty sure um it made the headlines at the time rumor technically but it's pretty well pretty good rumor um we'll keep our ears to the ground on this one but just just i don't know we'll, we'll see what happens um speaking about brand stuff in general dave you recently published a piece on how uh seemingly every mountain bike brand on the planet is trying to get a piece of the gravel bike pie uh what did you find here that every mountain bike brand on the planet is trying to get a piece of the gravel pie. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it pretty much all except for Yeti. Yeti have basically announced that they're not developing a gravel bike. It seems there's some friendships there with uh, with Open that have existed for quite a few years and that will continue. Um, that one surprised me because Yeti have done a drop bar bike in the past with a cyclocross bike, a pretty limited edition one, but... It feels to me like a lot of Yeti customers would buy a Yeti gravel bike if they released one. Um, but Yeti's historically quite conservative. I mean, they they were very late with like 29ers, for example. And when they finally released one, they called it the Big Top in reference to it being like a circus bike. Um, so, Clown yeah. bike, I believe, Dave. Clown bike. Clown bike. There you go. So, I mean, it's, yeah. Um, so that one, Yeti are out. Uh, transition kind of gave me a like a, you know, we're not really developing one, but we might develop one kind of answer. Um, and that's basically the extent of the mountain bike brands that don't have a gravel bike. Um, it's only when you get to like the really niche, really niche brands where you start to see mountain bike brands that don't have gravel bikes. It's like the 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 We Are One and the 
gorilla gravity and the right but otherwise like your santa cruz and pivot and like common is a pretty recent one uh yt like they're all, all of these brands they're all in yeah um like santa cruz you know there's a new stigmata coming we've seen it it won leadville i believe um and not leadville unbound yes um and that's kind of got some cool you know like down tube storage built into it. it's got new geometry it looks like it's suspension ready um but yeah there's certainly a lot of investment and uh speaking with everyone it seems like they uh generally across the industry they think gravel still has quite a bit of growth left in it and i think that's especially true outside of the u.s i think the u.s still has some growth left in it but the u.s has been the real boom market and i think we're seeing other areas of the world now catching on to that to that boom so this past weekend i was up in fort collins colorado uh, just a little bit north of me and i attended this event called the foco fondo uh, i can't remember how many years it's been around but it's a it's a mixed terrain event it's kind of mostly gravel um but it's gotten pretty big they have almost two thousand participants um and I, I made a point of just talking to a bunch of random amateur riders um partially because I wanted to see what they were riding and, you know, how much they had spent on stuff. So you can expect a little story and gallery from that coming soon. Um, but the majority of people I talked to, they had gotten into, well, pretty much everyone had gotten into gravel for one of two reasons. Either they were, um, either they were already longtime roadies and didn't want to share space with cars anymore for good reason. Um, and then kind of a smaller percentage of people, they were mountain bikers who, kind of wanted to be able to check out some other terrain or cover a little bit more ground and kind of just do something a little bit different. Um, but it was pretty clear from the people that I talked to and just looking at some of the numbers, uh, I wouldn't say gravel, like, yeah, I wouldn't say that gravel is saturated in the U S yet. Uh, the growth has certainly started to, to level off a little bit, but, um, it, you know, the people who thought that gravel was just sort of like going to be this fad that's going to fade away. And that's clearly not going to happen. <laughs> No, no. And it's like, I mean, this is nothing new. We've been saying this for five plus years, but it's it's very much the, the crossover point. We're seeing hardcore roadies getting into mountain bike, having been through the gravel phase or being through the gravel interest point, I guess. Uh, and then at the same time, where uh, I've met quite a few mount, like hardcore mountain bikers who had never previously considered dropper bikes, who are now on like aero road bikes based on have how much fun they had with gravel bikes uh so yeah i mean it's it really is this perfect crossover point for the bike industry so it makes it makes absolute sense as to why every brand wants a piece of it uh but it is yeah it's just quite uh it was quite amusing to sort of see the the last few holdout brands in the mountain bike space sort of jump into the scene all within the last six months like the likes of intense and common cell and evil uh, I mean, they've been in uh, for a little while now but evil evil's been a yeah um but yeah you've even got like brands like rottweiled in in europe who have launched an e-gravel bike uh so yeah and and uh what's the other one i'm trying to think of mondraker they as well they launched an e-gravel bike so it's uh yeah it's it's just everyone wants a piece of the pie or or no one wants to miss out it's yeah it, anyway that article's up check it out uh last bit of news that i want to get to before we talk about what's on our mind is uh 
Uh, we have a new announcement from RockShox. They've got a new range of SID forks and shocks. Um, so the biggest news on the fork are some new multi-position compression dampers, updated air springs. Uh, the most interesting dampers have uh, got three positions set up. They've got open, pedal, and lock positions, which seems very reminiscent of the old Fox CTD stuff from a really long time ago. Um, but anyway, you can adjust those uh, you can adjust those compression settings on the fly, either uh, with a manual dial on the crown or remotes. Uh, RockShox says also the updated air springs have more negative air volume, new coil instead of rubber top-out springs, so they're more sensitive on smaller stuff than they were before. Um, they also have some mild chassis updates, you know, including some more aggressively machined aluminum crowns that we've kind of spotted here and there. Uh, but also they have longer stanchions for more bushing overlap and uh, more bushing separation, which is very much a good thing. Should make the fork stiffer for better, better handling. Um, they still top out at 120 mils of travel. Prices range, I mean, it's a, it's a premium product apparently. So their uh, price, price ranges uh, from 900 to 1,000 US. So none of them, none of them are cheap. Um, the updated Sid Lux wrist shocks uh, also get some new three position compression dampers on some of them with the same open pedal and lock positions. Uh, also some updated valving that's supposedly more active on square edge stuff. Uh, longer bottom up bumpers for kind of a gentler landing if you uh, approach full travel. So you can expect to see these on a bunch of new Trek and Specialized and Santa Cruz and BMC Canyon transition bikes any day now. Um, these changes sound good because I've spent a whole lot of time on current gen SID stuff and I have found them to be kind of a little bit firm for my liking, for my liking even for an XC suspension. Um, so I think this should make them more competitive, I would think, or at least make them feel a little bit more like some of the Fox stuff that's out there, I would think. Yeah. So, so just to clarify, there's, there's still the two models. You've still got the, the SID SL, which is 32 mil stanchion. Yes, diameter. correct. Sorry. That has been bumped up to, uh, you can either get that in either 100 or 110 mil travel. So that's now a, a new longer travel version there. Uh, turns out that is the the fork that sits on the front of the uh, Specialized Epic World Cup that I've had for a couple of months, uh, which RockShox were unusually quiet about that fork. Uh, and yeah, then there's the SID, which is the 35 mil travel, sorry, 35 mil stanchion, 100 to 120 mil travel version. Yes, sorry, there are two versions. Um, Excuse me. Pardon so, me. Thanks for the clarification, yeah. Dave. Yeah. And they've uh they've gone from uh the the black version, they've updated previous version had uh the Sid Ultimate had silver decals on it and they've now copied me um because I'd changed my Sid Ultimate to have uh white decals to match my frame and that's where Sid have now gone. So I'm taking full credit for that. Um even though I don't think I ever posted about that. But uh there you go. So, and, e- and even though, my, my, even though you're certainly not going to get any royalty checks out of that either. No, no. But yeah, my my old Sid now looks like a new one. Hmm. So, hmm. don't know how I feel about well, that. Well, I do. I do think that these are good changes um, for anyone who is out there on a current Sid. I did send a note to SRAM's mountain bike PR person to ask if those new internals could be retrofitted into current chassis, and I have not heard back yet. Um, I'm sure that would not necessarily be a super inexpensive endeavor, but would be cheaper than buying a new fork. So, uh, that's something to think about, but, uh, anyway, um, some of this new product has started trickling in on some test bikes. Uh, one of which is behind me that I can't talk about yet. Um, but they do seem to ride better. So that's a, that's, that's a good thing. So, uh, good to see those, uh, good to see that stuff improving. Um, all right. Well, that'll wrap it up for the news segment of Geek Warning this week. Um, I, I apologize for some of the background noise that people may be hearing here. I am not only sitting next to a very uh, well-traveled hummingbird feeder here, so there's a lot of lot of 
a lot of bird wing flapping here going. And I'm also next to uh, next to some train tracks, and there's a train going by at the moment. So uh, sorry for all the background noise. Anyway, James James bringing all the vibes, all all the vibes. At least it's not rainy and thundering and lightning this time. So uh, that's an improvement. Uh, anyway, uh, mm. either of you have anything on your mind and perhaps over the heads of your family this week? Um, no, uh, I was so unwell that I didn't actually spend. You're not going to believe this, but I didn't spend a single dollar for seven days straight. You've, you've told me this already, and I, 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 yeah, I. How like surely you must have bought something even just to like help you recover? No, well, like my my wife did. She went out and did the shopping and stuff. But <laughs> me personally, I did not spend a single dollar. So that that's apparently what is required to get you to not buy tools is you need to be deathly ill in bed and semi conscious. Yeah, yeah, I need to be like hospital level unwell to to not buy tools wow wow interesting so okay anyway so now i'm trying to make up for lost time well dave i've I've been making up for it not not necessarily buying tools but um i think i've picked up a little bit of something from you and that i've been buying just arrow stuff that i don't need oh no (laughs) for i don't know if you can blame that on me <laughs> no, but it's. Uh, I, d- I definitely felt like I needed something that I was just uh, so that I was in solidarity with you. You know, spending mm. our money on things that we really don't need any more of. Yeah, yeah. Is it? Is it? Yeah. Is there a sense of desperation knowing that you've got a a second child on the way, thinking that this might be the last there, time for there, a while that you could buy this stuff? There very much was. Yes. <laughs> okay. Very, very, very much was. <laughs> There was uh, no expense spared in in the pursuit of every every single second. Mm, I don't know what you're talking about, Ronan. Kids are not in, kids are not expensive at all. Like there'll there'll be plenty of discretionary income left, no question. Hmm. Uh, yeah this this uh, this kid's already cost me a couple of bikes. I think and uh, missed test ride opportunities um, <laughs> over, the, over the next month or so. So and he's not even born yet, and he's already costing me bikes. James, James's garage is getting quite full while you're missing out. Oh my god! Picking, picking up a lot of slack here, guys. Picking up a lot of slack. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that has been on my mind this evening, uh, just before we came to this, was the the UCA has just published um, its list of equipment registered for inspection at the Glasgow Track World Championships next week, and. Uh, my wife was sitting watching Love Island as I was typing up a story about this uh, equipment list. So you can check out that story. It's 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 on the site right now as we speak. But the more I went through this list, and there's about 400 different new items listed on this uh, uh, list of equipment that has to be registered at Glasgow to be used at the Paris Olympics next year. And every single brand that I got to was like a new, wow, what is this? What is this? What is this? Uh, so I spent about an hour before we come onto this podcast, just like randomly WhatsApping and messaging and emailing different brand representatives with nothing other than the name of a new product they're about to get registered, a set of eyes emojis and a question mark and <laughs> just sat back and watched the, <laughs> watched the reactions roll in. <laughs> uh, top three most intriguing things on the list any like off the top of your head what was uh top three most intriguing got the heart things racing. i well there there's a few new frames there's a new track frame from bmc there's one from factor there seems to be a new track frame from panarello which has got the same name as that 3d printed one we've seen last year but with a c instead of 3d so i'm wondering is there like a 
carbon, carbon version yeah. of that yeah, yeah coming so. instead of instead of a 3d printed version um but i think uh what what really sort of caught my eye was and i'm taking a complete mind blank <laughs> i was getting somewhere and i should have just got there instead of oh yes the thing that really caught my eye was hope have a new your hope tech even have a new hbt paris on the list mm. which is not the hbt that broke the internet a few years ago so maybe it's a slight upgrade maybe it's a slight update maybe it's a complete overhaul Maybe it's definitely the latter of those two from the rumors I'm hearing. Um, but either way, I think we're about to find out in the very near future. Uh, so that one really caught my eye. Maybe, uh, maybe Hope and Team GB are do- doing a complete 180 and they're going like hyper, hyper narrow now instead of hyper wide. <laughs> uh, I don't want to get into it because I don't know if there's any truth in it up, but the rumors I'm hearing are is that there are more tubes getting wider not anything getting narrower. Mm. <laughs> so uh, it was the seats days before, wasn't it? Seats days um, and board blades. And, mm-hmm. and apparently there are more things getting wider for yeah. this latest iteration. Mm. Intriguing. Wow. Gravel, so. gra- fled gravel handlebars. <laughs> is there anything, is there anything, to keep- uh, the, the bars might be getting narrower. Actually, <laughs> okay, yeah. Is, yeah. is there anything in the regulations to keep a frame from being so wide that it keeps people from passing you? There, there is an outer width measurement for. Is it like fifty-two centimeters or something? After I can't, I can't exactly remember. But there is an outer width that your bike. Fifty-two is, centimeters is pretty wide. Or maximum width. Yeah, I mean it, it is. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm kind of wondering if you could do like super narrow handlebars with like just little wings coming out. The, edge of them. <laughs> uh, the other thing that uh, caught my eye on the list was a whole rake of new wheels uh, unsurprisingly I guess given uh, that it's track world championship coming up and ultimately the same stuff that will be used at the track uh, and the Olympic Games next year uh, and then the amount of clothing on this list is just mind boggling It and like just 10, 15, 20 different items from each brand almost uh, likes of AGU, Castelli uh, Vortec, especially Callas Q36.5, BioRacer have a whole host of different options there and I think what that is is they're uh, and this is all the stuff that I wanted to talk with Rachel earlier but she was watching Love Island so we couldn't really get into the reasons why you would need so many different skin suits um, but <laughs> I think that's for you know the high high speeds that the track sprinters were doing versus team, perspo- team pers- pursuit speeds why can't i say that tonight uh versus you know bunch racing speeds um so yeah i was fascinated by mm. each of the new things that i kept coming across on this list there's positional differences as well right and there's also body differences you know like the track sprinters are, are built very differently to a pursuit rider so exactly yeah yeah um, there's a lot there uh, and i mean the other big question mark around all of this is why the UCI can scan frames and measure frames and weigh frames and wheels and handlebars and this and the other. How do they actually check if the skin suit that was registered is the same skin suit that is used on the day of the Olympics? And, you know, there's all sorts of rumors and accusations floating around since Tokyo that a lot of the stuff that turned up in Tokyo wasn't actually the stuff that was registered and the UCI didn't really do anything about it and they're promising they will if the same happens again next year. Um, 
but yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I didn't really know what to think about this equipment registration process on the track until tonight when I seen this list pop up and I was like, I absolutely love this because <laughs> this is just, <laughs> it gets the hype going for the track world championships like nothing else could have. Uh, and, and speaking to a few of the brands, not, not tonight, but actually in the buildup, you know, throughout this year, what I'm hearing is a lot of these brands plan to run this equipment because the equipment has to be run in competition for it to be used in the Olympics. And what a lot of them are planning to do is actually have it run in like the qualifying heats at like six in the morning or something for two laps or the absolute minimum at the absolute quietest point of the day. Mm. Um, And then, you know, it was used in competition, might not have been used a heck of a lot, but they sort of keep it under wraps. Do we have any, do we have any sense as to how much of this new time, how much of this new track tech might also find its way onto time trial bikes. I mean, Hope did try to do it with the the they made a time trial version of the HPT from Tokyo. Never really took off all that much. And my understanding is that the you're basically getting like very very low yaw angles on on the track, and it's not really all that representative when you then go outdoors. So. You know how how much we'll actually see in the road. I'm not sure, but and even that of which we do, how how actually transferable it is to the outdoors is another question mark entirely. I think some of the technology around like overshoes and these aero base layers and presumably helmets and that uh, will make its way outdoors. Uh, maybe some of the wheel sets could be converted for road bikes, time trial bikes, uh, but I think the frames and that. It seems now that most of the manufacturers and nations who are really clued into this stuff are making almost entirely different yeah. uh, frames and, and wheel sets for, for track versus road. Yeah. My, my understanding from one source who are designing a bike for a nation uh, is that the, the funding, not always the case, but in this case, the funding from the nation is is certainly enough that the... It, it's sort of a a self funding marketing exercise almost like they don't necessarily need to get a a saleable product out of this because of the way it's funded um so it's not like they're burning through their own marketing budget to create it uh they're they're being paid it's a contract they're being paid to do it and the the outcome is uh yeah a, a product that hopefully will win a gold medal but at the same time doesn't yeah they don't need to be able to commercialize it for for road use or whatever they don't need to have uh yeah learn anything through the r&d process that's actually relevant to road it, it it can be its own standalone project big deep pockets basically yeah 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 and that's certainly not the case for a lot of nations like there's there are some big nations still fighting for gold at the olympics who uh they they need to attract sponsors basically to fund their teams um but yeah some of the nations really do have big government funded um budgets to for success so and i think that was a takeaway for me from this list that just emerged tonight was you know the uci's rationale behind the the registration process is that it's it's basically their way of ensuring that there's i think they call it fair and equitable access to equipment and you know across all the events uh for for all the teams and riders and it struck me tonight just looking at how many different models some of these brands have is that it 
it doesn't really achieve that. It just means that all these brands have to register everything in advance. They still can create much more and do much more R&D and bring much more to the events than the smaller nations and the smaller brands can. They just have to register it ahead of time. And the theory is that once it's registered, you can then buy it. But, I mean, I dare say you you might be able to order it. They are definitely getting stricter on that whole commercialization aspect. But, you know, first of all, our nation's going to want to spend whatever price tag is attached to these things. The UCI obviously can't control what what sort of price a brand would demand for, for a piece of equipment. And then even getting down to the fact that one of the brands listed for a series of wheel sets and frames and that on the list is named as TBC to <laughs> be confirmed. I'm pretty sure unless there's a brand I'm not aware of that's called TBC. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, if that if that doesn't scream that this is an exclusive product that, you know, we haven't even decided what the brand's called yet, but it's registered for inspection at the Glasgow World Amazing. Cup. Amazing. Uh, or World Championships. Yeah. So I don't think anything's ever really going to change there. It just means that you... Yeah, I get a bit of excitement sitting down mm. finding a list on the UCI's website. Uh, Ronan, do you have any plans to go to Track Worlds? I don't know. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I have plans to be in a hospital around about oh, the same time. Right, due right. date is around about the same right. time. So might be um, kind of hard to get away. Mm, might be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, coincidentally, due date is also time trial day. So, um, I mean. It was meant to be, wasn't it? <laughs> well, uh, we already have one, one. Well, I guess now former colleague who has missed the birth of a child because of work obligations. So uh, I would prefer that we not make that list grow by one. So mm. you should stay home. <laughs> as 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 much as I would like to be there, I would prefer to be here. Yeah, you know, track track worlds will come around again. Um, mm. All right. Well, let's. Uh, we're about out of time here. Let's uh, let's finish up with a PSA. Anyone have anything? Because if no one else has one, I do. Use yours, James. Mm, okay. Well, um, Dave, Dave, you will have to... I, I seem to have a habit of repeating things that were used in previous episodes, so you'll have to tell me if, yeah. if this happened already. Um, mm, I'm but, sure it has. <laughs> but I would like to just lend a reminder or put a reminder out there to people to, uh, if you're using disc brakes, to not just check your disc brake pad wear but also your rotor wear i don't think we've done this one really uh, i've definitely that? it's been top of my mind because i'm writing an article about uh changing disc brake pads um but before i do that i'm doing an article about bedding in um surprisingly big topic uh yes but go on uh yeah so um i mean it's not just your pads that wear out your rotor surface does get eaten away as well um and uh rotor manufacturers will always have a minimum rotor thickness that they publicize somewhere. <clears throat> Not always the easiest to find, but sometimes it's actually uh, laser etched right onto the rotor itself. Uh, some rotors, not very many, but some rotors also have wear indicators. Uh, I think Jaguar does this, and I think Swiss Stop does it as well. Um, but, uh, I mean, obviously, if your rotor gets too thin, that could be a safety issue. Um, but the other thing to consider is that rotors and pads don't always wear evenly. Um, it's not too different from your car, for example. So even if your rotor is still within spec for thickness, uh, it may not be within spec in terms of whether the faces are both parallel to each other. And if you were to have a rotor like that and you stick on some new pads, then your braking will work, but it won't be optimal. So 
that's something to keep in mind. If you have some calipers, uh, it's, that's definitely the easiest way to check the thickness of your rotor. Um, but that's also a good way to check if the if the the two sides are parallel, because uh, generally speaking, the jaws of some calipers are usually pretty good at being parallel. And if they don't line up with the sides of your rotor, then that's probably a good indication that they are no longer parallel. And you should get a new one. Yeah, the the caliper using calipers can be fraught with um, error as well because a lot of the time um, people have their disc brake set up where the pad actually sits uh, a millimeter below the top edge of the rotor, uh, and that'll actually mean that the center of the rotor brake track gets gets worn, while the the outside external diameter lip of the rotor actually remains kind of fresh. So if you were to put a caliper onto the rotor to measure it, uh, the caliper will measure the widest point, which is the unworn lip. Um, so you can actually see this. If you were to put a, a regular vernier caliper onto the rotor and you've got this issue, you'll actually see that the, the center of the rotor kind of sits indented from where the caliper is sitting. Um, so yeah, the way around that is to use like a, a micrometer or a, um, a, a thickness gauge is what they call it, which kind of just gives you two points, two smaller points to measure off of. And then that way you can kind of measure the, the center of the brake track uh, and overcome that, that issue. Yeah. Um, if your brakes are perfectly set up and, and are actually wearing onto the very edge of the rotor, then that's, that's not an issue either. Yeah, I guess even if you have a little bit of that gap, like you were talking about, Dave, I mean, sometimes with, depending, on the, depending on the calipers you have, um, sometimes you can kind of uh, almost kind of like angle the calipers a little bit so that the, the measuring portion of the jaws sits in the middle of the rotor. So sometimes, sometimes you can get away with that as well. Um, but either way, um, either way, measure those things. Uh, keep an eye on how thin they're getting. Uh, I definitely follow a bunch of mechanic Instagram accounts that are pretty entertaining as far as how far people let things go every now and then. Um, yeah. But, uh, cause it, it, it gets to a point like where one, the thinner rotor means your pads are, uh, progressing further out than they'll design to. So you can basically, you end up exposing the pistons more and you can end up getting leaking calipers and other issues like that. Uh, the other issue is that if you really leave it too long, eventually the brake track just separates from the rotor. Mm-hmm. Quite, quite a sight. It makes for quite a good Instagram mm. photo. Yeah. You you mentioned the micrometer there, Dave. I think you'll find it's a, a micrometer. <laughs> yes. Uh, no. Mm-hmm. no. Yes. <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, you're right. Um, yeah. Anyway. No, uh, I'm very, very wrong. But mm. uh, oh. when I see micrometer written down, my brain says micrometer. <laughs> Yeah, All right. I, I think uh, I don't think you're wrong. Um, I, I just think we're both right. Hmm. Okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe, we, maybe we should run. Maybe we should run a poll on the Geek Warning channel in the uh, the, the 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 Discord group here. Yeah, mm. yeah, but uh, yeah. Regardless, it's uh, that is a very good PSA. Hmm. How and about that? I would say, experience wise, I'd say generally you probably get two to three sets of pads off a rotor before it meets minimum thickness yeah depending on what kind of pads you run yeah yeah but like a shimano road running resin pads that's kind of in my experience it's like yeah by the third set you're normally at the minimum thickness or yeah as i told a friend of mine the other day you know if you just don't ride your stuff your stuff lasts forever (laughs) it does (laughs) all right anyway it's about to start thunder and lightning out here so uh I'm, i'm gonna go ahead and wrap up before i start getting wet um 
Thanks as always for listening to Geek Warning. We always appreciate your listeners out there. Uh, just another reminder, if you are not already an Escape Collective member, please consider doing so or at least subscribing. It really does help us out because again, this is a member and subscriber funded operation here. We do not have any sponsors or ads. Um, and if you have not yet left us a rating and review on iTunes, please do so as well, uh, because, again, uh, it, it does really help a lot of people find this show, which helps us out immensely, certainly more than you realize. Uh, and I will say after a couple weeks ago, when I, when I requested a bunch of people to leave some fresh ratings and reviews, there did appear to be a bunch of fresh ratings and reviews pop up. So thank you very much for everyone who took the time to do that. So, uh, yeah, that, that's about all I've got today. So. Uh, I guess unless anyone else has anything to add, thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week. Cheers. <laughs>